this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Well, if you like a good war story, this one should be good. My next guest, Ross Hook, started Impress Engineering and built it to a $2.5 million company or with roughly $500,000 in EBITDA before he sold it. And that's where the fun starts. As he will tell you, the deal went south. He ended up getting his assets back, but not much more. He regrets this decision to sell it, but I think there are some tremendous lessons for you in the story from Ross Hook. Here's Ross to tell you the rest of the tale. Ross Hook, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good morning, John. Tell me a little bit about Impress Engineering. What, what did you guys do? Uh, Impress basically is a um, CNC machine shop. Uh, we specialized in um, CNC manufacturing a lot of prototype parts. So you so, lost you lost me on CNC. I don't know what that means. Yep, yep. CNC is computerized numeric numerical control is what it stands for. Basically, it's a computerized milling machine. Um, so we'll take blocks of aluminum and machine. Um, gadgets out of it. So anything you can think of, um, you know, we've machined it at some point or another um, for testing purposes, for visual aids, um, et cetera. So, you know, the big, the big buzz these days is 3D printing. Um, 3D printing is an additive manufacturing process, they call it. They build something from nothing. CNC milling is a subtractive process. We take a large block and whittle away the access and leave what we want left. So for example, um, if, if, I, if I wanted to create um, a new coaster for my coffee and I wanted it out of aluminum, I could, I could come to you and say, I want you to punch me out 100,000 of these coasters out of a block of aluminum. Uh, is, that what, is that what the company did or does? Uh, no, actually. Um, for 100,000 pieces, you're talking production machining, high volume, um, you know, typically done in low cost, uh, countries and then imported into the U S what we do is you say, I've got this idea for this coaster and I'm going to use it to keep my coffee cup warm. Okay. Those already exist, but we're, we're going to, we're going to do that wirelessly for once. Um, we're going to make a battery powered, um, heated coaster to keep my coffee warm. And you come to me with this idea and, um, you've got, uh, you know, electrical engineer in your pocket and you need physical prototypes made to prove that it works. And, and then you can take these prototypes and you take them to uh, Amazon or Target and you say, here, try this. Got it. Um, I proved it works by my idea. And then at that point, you take it to the company that hopefully makes you millions of them. So I'm the guy at the front end um, 
before the process, before the product is 100% developed typically, um, and we'll make anywhere from one to, uh, you know, 50 or 100, uh, but it's rare we do thousands. Awesome. Okay, so I get it now, I think. Um, that's helpful. And so how did you get into this business? What was your sort of, how did you start the business? Um, actually, it goes back to, um, back to high school. Um, I hated school. Um, it, it was, school was very easy for me. I went to a, a, a private school in town here that was, you know, um, we'll say, you know, high level academic. And, um, I coasted through, I put very little effort into, you know, getting reasonably good grades and especially math and science. And, uh, my shop teacher actually got me an internship at a local automotive uh, manufacturing company um, that um, made automotive interior components. And I went to work there in the prototype, in the model shop, they call it, but in the prototype world where we were developing um, new products for cars. And at this time, um, you know, it was the early 90s or 1990. Um, and the computerized manufacturing really was in its infancy at that point. So there was a lot of handwork, a lot of um, skilled people making these prototypes with their hands and sanding them and, and painting them and, and creating these products that we all do with computerized machining now largely by hand. And um, I got this internship and worked there as a senior in high school and uh, enjoyed it and was very good at it. And as I said, I hated school. So at that time already, people were, you know, hollering college, college, college. And I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go. And um, so I went from this prototyping apprenticeship position into a skilled trades um, mold maker profession. Um, and and that's, you know, kind of snowballed from there. Cool. How, how big did you get impressed before you decided you wanted to sell it? I mean, like, what was the... How much revenue did you have? How many employees did you have? That kind of stuff. Like, how big was it when you decided that uh, it was time to sell? Um, so, you know, Impress grew to occupying a 36,000 square foot building. And we used about, you know, real world's half of it. But we had a big building, um, two dozen CNC machines, which is a lot for only 16 employees. Um, you know, we, we did, um, we did a couple million in sales, um, never in a calendar year, but in a 12 month trailing period, we did, we did that. We hovered around that area for the last five years that I was in business. So, so not huge by any means. Um, but, um, you know, for, you know, a relatively small shop with 16 employees, you know, we had a pretty nice business model. Tell me a little bit about that business model. So I'm assuming each job is custom. Is that is that correct? correct. So you'd have a project, and and how did you bill for that? Was that all once you delivered the prototype, all up front in stages? How how was the billing model? Um, you know, most of the jobs we did were quite small. So quite small being um, three to five thousand dollars. You know, we lived under that world, and and in that environment, uh, if you miss, you miss pretty big sometimes. Um, you know, we had some hundred thousand dollar projects, um, you know, nice, nice niche for us was, you know, $30,000 projects. Um, but generally, uh, the projects were very, very, very fast turnaround. So, you know, uh, fast turnaround for us is a few days. Normal is a couple weeks. 
um, you know, very slow, very long is, is two months. So, but how did you, how did uh, so, you, how did you bill Ross? Did you bill up front or once you deliver the prototype? So the smaller, the smaller projects were always completed and then been invoiced after completion. So we'd do the job, spend, you know, a couple of days on it, it, two weeks from the time we got the job to the job's done, we'd invoice it and we'd get paid in, in 30 to um, 60 days. Um, typically, typically 45 or less. Um, bigger projects, you know, once we started getting past, you know, 10,000 bucks, we liked to get at least, um, something up front from the customer, third up front, half down, something like that. Um, bigger projects over $30,000, we'd always split them up into like three payments, um, to keep cash flow going and to, to mitigate our risk for having, um, you know, a significant investment in raw material and labor before the project is completed. Got it. So this is a project-based business, a couple million in revenue. What sort of margins, like profit margins, would you be working on? Like at the end of the day, after paying all the expenses, what would you be left with in terms of um, a percentage on that two million? Well, we actually, um, you know, based on average for the business, um, numbers we, you know, did when we sold the business, um, we operated at 25% profit margin, um, good jobs. Um, we would do, you know, I'd say, and on average, you know, we'd, we'd be doing 35, 40%. Uh, but then occasionally you got the ones where, you know, you don't make anything. So is that, um, is that, a that Ross, is that gross margin or like what was your profit in the year that you sold the business? Um, yeah, that'd be gross margin. Got it. So what was your net profit on the on the year that you sold? Oh, you're getting uh <laughs> I'm a I'm a machinist guy. You're getting too high tech for me on the financial side. <laughs> okay. Okay. No worries. No worries. Gross net, you know, whatever. We were making money. Um you know, we had a you know, EBITDA numbers were in the uh half million dollar range. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. That's helpful. Just, I wanted to make sure we were, we were talking the same, the same stuff. So we're kind of EBITDA at roughly 500 grand. So great, you know, great niche business. Um, why sell? What, what was it that made you want to sell? Um, you know, everybody talks these days about finding good employees and I guess, um, you know, for me, like I said, I'm a machinist. I, I like working with my hands and I built this business out of um, passion and love for doing it and grew it into, you know, something that I thought had outgrown my capability at, as an owner to grow. And so I guess the biggest thing that drove me to sell was um, dealing with employees and, um, you know, I just, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. I had all the stress of making sure not only my mortgage was paid, but their mortgage was paid and the mortgage on my building was paid and the equipment loans were paid off. And, and so I had built this monster over the course of 20 years that just required, um, you know, so much management and I didn't get to do the part of the job that I loved anymore. And, um, and I, I was hiring, uh, people to try to manage and um, really had uh, pretty bad luck with it. I had, you know, four or five uh, people that were hired to be managers and it just didn't work out. Um, and, and the 
it just got to a point where it's like, well, you know, manufacturing jobs, manufacturing businesses are hot. And I think I've got a great business here. And it's like, maybe I can transition this to helping somebody else that's better at the employee side, better at the business management side than me, but I can help them and I can continue to do the technical side and and I can continue to come up with the ideas uh, of how we're going to make these things. Cause we make stuff all the time that has never been done and, and we've got to think through it. And, and, and a lot of times our customers don't even care if it's manufacturable long-term as long as they can test the concept. Um, so we're doing stuff with these machines that they're not designed to do. Um, so you factor all that in and, and really the employees probably were the thing that, that frustrated me the most um, to, you know, finally saying, you know, I think I've got something that I can sell here. I'm relatively young. I've got time to do something else with my life. Um, post sale, hopefully I'll work for the new owner for five, 10 years, whatever. Um, and then maybe I can retire, um, you know, 10 years from now. Got it. That's, that's super helpful. So you've got this business generating a couple million dollars in revenue, roughly 500 grand in profit now or EBITDA. Um, what did you, what did you think it was worth before you went to, proactively start selling it what do you have a sense of what it was worth um you know i i asked um you know my cpa to put a number on it and and he did and um you know i i did a little bit of research on multiples of ebitda and and you know um basically um you know i think my cpa said it was worth you know you know two two and a half million something like that and um you know, I felt like it was worth uh, four-ish, um, three to four-ish. Um, the challenge with uh, my business and the model I created was this very fast turnaround. We needed to have a lot of excess equipment. And so the challenge, you know, all the factors of EBITDA and stuff, they don't factor in, they really don't factor in physical assets of a business. And this business had, you know, I, I think the appraisal was uh, $2.5 million in equipment alone um, when I sold it. So very asset-rich business. And I think that's one reason manufacturing business businesses are so hot, because buyers are actually getting something beyond a concept or you know, a, a regular revenue stream. And I think that's one thing that differentiates manufacturing from a lot of other businesses, just the raw physical assets of them. So the assets that you had, you thought were were worth a couple million bucks, two, two, two and a half million dollars. Yep. How did you arrive at your own personal valuation of between three and four? What was going into that valuation? Um, basically factoring in, you know, our, our sales, our sales revenues, you know, you know, those numbers as my CPA, you know, uh, told me, you know, those came up with two, two and a half million dollars in value. Uh, but then factoring in the underused, um, equipment and adding to that value. Um, and then, you know, largely looking for a buyer that was capable of, um, utilizing the equipment over and above. So, you know, we could, with the equipment we had, we easily could have doubled our sales. We would have needed 50% more employees, 
Uh, but we had enough equipment to easily double our sales. So finding a buyer that saw that value and and had the workload that they could bring in um, so we could maintain the prior book of business and add 50% or double it without, um, you know, killing the employees or needing to go out and spend, you know, additional millions of dollars on equipment. Got it. And so you had this notion that it was worth somewhere in the three to four range. Where, how did you go about finding a buyer? Uh, I actually hired a local business broker, um, interviewed a few and, um, and, uh, uh, chose, um, uh, a company out of Grand Rapids here in Michigan. Got it. And so what next they're marketing the business. Did you get any offers? Um, actually that was, you know, interesting cause we went through the, you know, the whole setup process and, um, you know, they, they evaluated the business also and, and came up with what they thought a value was. And what did they think um, it was worth? Um, in the same range, two to two and a half million. Um, and they didn't really believe that I was really prepared to sell. So they actually kind of twisted my arm and, and normally they do these things. Uh, straight commission after the sale and they, you know, I had to pay them a retainer up front because they didn't believe I was, you know, at 45 years old, they didn't believe I was prepared to sell this business that was doing very well. Um, we were making money, we were doing good, uh, we were growing um, because actually we talked about profits and, and you know, we were maintaining 25% profits while we were continuously reinvesting in the business and even this building um, fixing up the building and, um, you know, we were, we were really doing very well, uh, when we were spending money on stuff that technically, you know, didn't need to be spent. Those valuations from the broker at two to two and a half and from your CPA at two to two and a half, did they include the building that you owned or not? No, it's all without the building. I'm, I'm sorry. That's without the building. That's without the building. Okay, that's that's helpful uh, background. So, so they do the valuation. They charge you some upfront to make uh, make sure you're kind of serious. Then what? What did they bring in uh, a buyer? Was there was there obviously at some yeah, point you found a buyer? <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, we actually had a tremendous amount of um, interest immediately. I think we did two dozen showings um, in the first um, month. Um, the first, um, uh, the first showing I had was actually, um, the gentleman I chose to sell the business to. And, um, he, he was the first person to look at it. He made an offer the next day and, um, I turned him down and continued to show the business. What was his offer? Uh, Three and a quarter plus earn out. It was like four million total. Okay, How'd you, why'd you turn it down? Sounds pretty good. Um, because it was the first offer I had and hadn't. Um, it was kind of like it was, you know, too good to be true. And, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't accept it. No longer show it to anybody else. And then continuously be wondering, did I do the right thing? Got it. And was, um, was the three quarter, three and a quarter, was that going to be cash at closing or were they asking you to finance portion of that or what was the? Uh, yeah, it was 25% owner's financing. Um, so two and, a, two and a quarter at close and 
So basically I walked away from, I would have walked away from clothes with what everybody said the business was worth. And then I still had a, an upside of, um, 750 in owner financing and, um, earn out on top of that and a job for 10 years, um, and rent revenue from the building. Wow. So it's a, it's a rich offer. So we, so w- what happened next? You, you, you turned it down because you obviously, uh, there were, there were other people that were interested. Um, yes. So tell me more about that. What, uh, what were the other offers? How, how do they compare with the original? So we had, like I said, we had another two dozen showings. Um, just about everybody felt it was um, in the in the two and a quarter range uh, in value. Um, I had um, two other very serious buyers. Uh, one which uh, matched the original offer for dollar amount, and one that was, uh, you know, half million shy. Um, and uh, so those three became the the three that. Um, you know, I needed to evaluate and decide if it was if it was really time to sell or if we, um, you know, either take our time and wait longer, which uh, my broker, you know, severely discouraged. Um, so, so I had to evaluate those those three offers, and I really liked the third offer, but the dollar amount just wasn't there. It wasn't enough to make it worth my time. There just wasn't enough profit there. I could stay in business two years and make more money than you know, I was going to come out ahead from that deal. Um, so it really came down to the two other offers. And ultimately I chose um, the person that I thought had the best ability to grow the business. Um, uh, it came from money. So he had the best ability to pay for it. Um, and uh, so we went with that one. And, and the details, and that ended up being that first offer in the end. Is that right? It did. It did. And, um, you know, it was interesting because he was, uh, when we turned him down initially, he was, he was quite upset. And, um, and that was, you know, really kind of, um, you know, and he said that offer wasn't going to be around, you know, down the road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, um, that was probably one of my first warning signs that I, that I ignored that this deal, you know, could go south pretty badly. So the, the, was there any difference between the original offer of three and a quarter plus earnout, twenty five percent financing, uh, owner financing? Was there any difference between the original offer and what you actually closed on, or did you close on the original offer? Uh, actually, we um, actually the price went up. Um, so when we did the letter of intent, um, pretty much the terms were the same as the original offer. Um, but between the time of the letter of intent to the time we closed, um, I actually drove the price up, uh, approximately 400,000, um, through terms, um, just because we talked about the, um, intense equipment that was in place here. I fully expected one of the things that drove the price up was I fully expected a very thorough, um, appraisal of all the equipment. And the thing with machine shops, you've got all these equipment that's, you know, eighty thousand dollars new to buy, and the one sitting on the floor might be worth fifteen thousand or forty thousand or whatever. So you've got all that stuff, but machine shops have tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of 
perishable tooling and small hand tools and, and stuff that as an, as a business, you really never, hopefully you never um, get them on an appraisal because essentially all your appraisal is doing is guaranteeing your loan to the bank. Um, and, you know, hopefully you're not stretched that tight that you have to have that stuff itemized. So, um, you know, I had had a couple of equipment appraisals over the years, but none of that stuff was on them. And this, this buyer chose to basically use an appraisal that I had. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, what about all this stuff? I said, I got to get paid for this stuff. And he's like, you're right, you do, but I don't want to pay for an appraisal. He's like, so let's, let's negotiate it. So we came up with about $150,000 worth of miscellaneous stuff um, that was added to the purchase price. Um, and uh, that was actually added as a net 30 day purchase. Um, and then I also negotiated my salary up and, and some other things. So, so I drove the price up about 400,000 from the letter of intent to the time we closed. Fantastic. So you're, you're kind of north of three and a half at this point. Yeah, we were, we were pushing three and a half. I think the deal was actually three, um, three even initially, cause I financed 750. So 25% of that. Um, so the deal was three plus a job, you know, with a salary plus, you know, up to a half million dollars in earn out, um, over 10 years. Um, so the, the net purchase price started at three and worked up closer to 3.4. Got it. And what was the earn out tied to? Uh, profitability of the business. Got it. Got it. And, and that was how many years was the earn out to be? Uh, it was 10 years, actually. T 10 years. Wow. Okay. So you yeah. can, you can yeah. earn up to an incremental $500,000 over a 10-year period if, if, yep. if earnings targets were met. Got it. Okay. So you consummate this deal. You, you, uh, you agreed to it. How, how were you feeling at the time of close? Did it, it, it sounds like it was a favorable deal. You were happy with it or, or, or am I putting words in your mouth? Um, you know, it's a, it's a very stressful process, no matter, you know, no matter how you come out, you know, I was definitely very happy that I was in a position that I didn't have to sell because the whole time when we're dealing with the stress of the negotiation and the stress of the deal, um, I kept thinking to myself, man, you know, what, what kind of, how would I be taking this if I was in a position where I had to sell, I couldn't you know, I was sick or I couldn't pay the bills or, or whatever. I'm like, and I was very thankful that I was not in that position. And that's ultimately what gave me the ability to drive the price up. Um, so by the time we closed, I was feeling pretty good. I guess the worst, and, and the other reason that the price got driven up was um, this, this owner's financing I did, um, I was not able to get a personal guarantee on that. And that was one thing that, uh, for me, it was very hard to swallow. And um, we're literally, you know, we're probably at the point where we were supposed to be closing. And, you know, it took us a couple weeks longer than it should have. And um, that not being able to get a personal guarantee from this person that comes from, you know, pretty significant uh, financial backing um, was... Um, very tough, but we came up with some guaranteed, and I'll put guaranteed in quotes, uh, because as my deal uh, fell apart, nothing was guaranteed. Um, we came up with some guaranteed payments that 
were enough that I was willing to take the risk on um, the seller financing without a personal guarantee. So just to just to make everybody clear on this, um, the serv- the sale price was 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 three million dollars up front, of which seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars was to be financed over time. So you would get yep. two and a quarter in cash at close and seven hundred and fifty financed. Is that yep. right? And the seven hundred and fifty yep. financing, um, you had this wealthy buyer who who you know, you knew you had he 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 had the money to 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 pay for it. Um, and so you wanted a personal guarantee that if for whatever reason they reneged on the, the commitment to to pay the seven fifty, that you could go after them personally and they refused to sign the personal guarantee. If I got that right? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So where does it go from there? Um, so um ultimately we ended up closing. Um we negotiated some some guaranteed things in, as I said, and um you know, we closed on uh, uh, the end of March, just over two years ago. Um, and we went from that to um, telling my employees um, and introducing them to the um, the new owner. And I actually told, I told my number one employee, my office manager, um, I told her first uh, in private and um, that I think I told her even before I told her after the letter of intent was signed, but before the the deal was done, because I knew I was going to need her help preparing documents. And also I was going to take a lot of my time and, and she was going to need to know why I wasn't you know in the office. Um, so she knew about a month before the sit the close. And then everybody else got told um, basically the, the day after when I introduced the new owner of the business. Fantastic. So, how was that? How was that received? What, what was the reaction from your employees? Uh, well, my office manager was um, uh, very upset. Um, kind of transitioned from um, from mad, uh, mad at me, to mad at herself, to ultimately um, understanding. And this was all over the you know the course of a two two and a half hour um, lunch. Um, so that was that was you know stressful and, and interesting um and then uh the rest of the employees um you know i had one employee that was with me for for a dozen years and um he was very understanding um you know everybody else i, I think for the most part uh they understood but you know we're we're somewhat disappointed but um you know, they took it, they took it well. So what happens next? Uh, I understand there's a bit of drama that took place. Maybe you could get into that. Yeah. So, um, so basically, um, the structure of the deal was, um, I was supposed to, I had a contract to work for the new owner for two years. Um, but after six months I could quit and he would still have to pay my salary for two years. Um, so I was going to transition into doing the part of the job that I enjoyed the most. And he was going to transition into working with the office manager and, and running the business and dealing with the day-to-day stuff, uh, the financial side of things. And then he was going to work on growing the business. Um, so he came in and we started working at that level, um, for the first, uh, month or two. He also came in with a financial partner, um, a, a CFO that was, uh, 
going to like sweat equity his way into a partnership. Um, but he was kind of the detailed guy on the money side. Uh, so he came in and we started transitioning the business and, um, Within 30 days, my office manager and I, you know, we were we were going to the new owner and we're saying, okay, now this is an ownership decision. You know, what do you want us to do? And typically, he would ask what we would do, and then he'd say, okay, do it. And, and so that's you know, it seemed okay. Um, but we found uh, within two months, uh, we found that his attention to detail was. Uh, very poor, and we ultimately ended up deciding, well, um, you know, we need to run this business the way we think it should be run, and if he doesn't like it, you know, because he wasn't around enough to take care of these decisions that needed to be made, so we just, we couldn't wait. We had to make decisions, so we started um, just making decisions, said, well, you know, if he slaps us on the wrist, he slaps us on the wrist. There's nothing we can do. We have to do what we believe is best for this business. And so we started doing that and, um, you know, I, within three months of the sale, I pretty much knew I was screwed. Um, we were, the company was broke. Um, he did not have, he did not put, um, he didn't even, he didn't even seed the company bank account with enough money to pay the bills for the first two months because our business is typically a net you know, as we said, a net 45 day terms, we bill net 30, expect to get paid in 45, some drag out to 60. So, you know, I would have told him, look, you know, your, your hard costs are, are 125,000 a month. You're really not going to make any money for two months. You need to put a quarter million dollars in the company bank account. And that we didn't have any money. So within 30 days, we were broke. Um, some of these other additional funds that, uh, were supposed to be paid to me were net 30 day purchases. And at 30 days, the company is already broke and he can't afford to pay me. And he asked me, Hey, you know, are you willing to finance that? And I'm like, well, no, this was guaranteed money. And sure. You're offering me 8% interest, which I can't get anywhere else. But the getting this money was a difference between, you know, you getting this business or not. Um, so within, within two months, uh, the company was broke, things were going sideways and he was already trying to renegotiate my deal with me. And it was very concerning. Ross, had you received the two and a quarter cash at closing? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, you'd banked that, uh, but the. The, the rest of it, in particular, the, the owner finance portion, the 750K, looked like it was in jeopardy. Um, so then what happens? Um, so I actually, um, I actually researched bailing on him. And I'm like, there is no way this guy can make it. It was, you know, we're three months in. I'm like, this is it's inconceivable. This guy is going to make it. And I met with my lawyer and, and considered bailing on him. He's like, well, if he's going to fail anyway, you know, pull out, you know, and, um, what, ultimately, did, what did you mean by pull out? What, what, what did that mean? Well, I could have, I could have quit at any time. I could have quit at any time, but my contract to work for him, um, guaranteed me full payment if I worked six full months. So at two and a half months ish, 
we're already having troubles and I considered quitting because it's like, well, the sooner I quit, the sooner he's going to fail, the sooner I can get back to fixing my life. And did you, Ross, just to be be clear, the 750K, uh, while you didn't get a personal guarantee, did, did you, was there any recourse? Like, for example, did you receive any of the assets of the business back if he reneged or wasn't able to pay that? That 750. Well, I was, yeah, I was, I accepted a position, a second position to his bank because he financed, mm. um, a, you know, most of the sale he financed through his bank. So I was the second secured creditor behind his bank. And he didn't have enough assets to pay his bank off. Um, there wouldn't be anything left for me. And this ultimately turned into a huge deal um, down the road. Um, but in hindsight, um, you know, he was renting my building and a lot of these pieces of equipment are, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 pounds. My, my thought was, well, nobody in their right mind would move this equipment out of my building. So the value in this equipment was significantly more as long as it was in my building than it would have been if he had moved it. And in hindsight, when I didn't get the personal guarantee, I should have gotten a guarantee that, um, he couldn't move any of the equipment off of my property unless it was paid for. And that turned out to be um, a, a significant mistake um, because while he couldn't afford to move the equipment, he didn't realize he couldn't afford it. And he thought his dad was going to pay to move. And then we're talking a half million dollars to move this business and probably three months without any work revenue. So a significant cost to move the business. And, and, you know, I went to this, I'm like, nobody in the right mind would move this business. Well, it turned out I picked a buyer that wasn't in his right mind and he continually threatened to move the business. So, um, so yeah, um, significant problems after two and a half months and, and ultimately I could have quit and I'm like, well, you know what, this deal is going sideways. And I'm like, the guy chose to buy it. Nothing is ever his fault. He's been bailed out his entire life. And this deal is going to be bad for me. I know it is. I know I'm going to end up in court. I know I'm going to end up in a bad space. And at that point, I decided I'm not going to let him be able to blame me. And, and I just, I shut it off and I said, well, it's his business. I sold it to him. I'm going to do the best I can for him. And if he chooses not to accept it, when he fails, which I was certain he would, um, he will not be able to blame me, or at least I will know in good conscience that I did everything in my power to give him the, his best possible chance of success. So once I made that decision at about three months, um, things got quite a bit better, uh, better for me uh, working for him. Why was that? Um, well, basically, I just, you know, at some point you got to let your, you got to let your baby go, you know, and, and, and I had to decide that that's what I did. And there was things that I couldn't do anything about. And I had to make sure that those things did not, you know, upset me and detract from what um, should have been the, the best time of my life. Um, and I enjoyed, even though I didn't, uh, enjoy working for him. I enjoyed the part of my job and I really didn't mind working for him, uh, because he largely let us do what we wanted. Um, 
But, uh, and I got to do the best part of my job and I didn't have to worry about everybody else's mortgages. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, um, you know, he didn't worry about it either. Uh, so my office manager had to step up and she took, she took charge of that and she would ask me for help. But, uh, for the most part, letting go was a big step. And, and one, and at, at that point I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to do everything I can to help them. And that's all I can do. And Ross, are you getting your payments on the 750k loan? Um, so um, the convent, the condensed version is um, I made this decision to stick around, and do my best for him at three months. At six months, I could have quit, and I still would have gotten paid. But again, he would have been able to uh, blame me for his failure down the road. Um, at seven months, he created his single well, I'll call it second biggest mistake, um, single biggest mistake, but second major mistake. At seven months post-sale, he fired both me and my office manager on the same day. And at that point, he had no idea how to run a job to the business, and he didn't have anybody here that knew how to run the business. Um, so that was a huge, huge, huge turning point. And, and like I said, he made the decision and things were really turning around for the business at that point. Um, so he fired me at seven months, um, less than a year post sale, he quit paying me. Um, so right now we're at 25 months post sale and, um, he went out of business in 21 months. Um, like I said, he quit paying me in less than 12 months. He went out of business in 21 months and, um, we settled the lawsuit uh, about six weeks ago. And, and how was it settled? Um, so basically, um, basically nine months of litigation and uh, depositions and messes in court. Um, he couldn't produce a single shred of uh, evidence supporting his claim. And we were able to... Um, his family money was a big factor. We were able to drag his dad into this thing. And, um, and ultimately, um, we settled for everybody walking away from everything, um, including the equipment. The equipment was scheduled to be auctioned. Um, and, uh, we settled like five days before the auction. Um, and I got all my equipment back. Um, Actually, we never we never missed a month's rent on the building. The bank paid me the last couple months' rent on the building. Um, but uh, yeah, I got all the equipment back. I walked away from the the money that he owed me. I walked away from the money I'd spent on lawyers. Um, and um, and now we're and and actually, he stopped paying me after a year, and I had already restarted my business um, two months after that when my non-competition agreement terminated. Sorry, your non-compete terminated as a result of the lawsuit? The non-competition agreement terminated uh, because he stopped paying me. Gotcha. Okay. What a, what a nightmare. It, it was it absolutely the most horrible uh, two years of my life. Just inconceivable, um, horrible, 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 horrible deal. But part of me is also sitting there saying, 
okay, but you got your equipment back. You have all the expertise in CNC manufacturing and design. You can go start up again two and a quarter million richer. Well, that's not, you know, that's not necessarily the case because, you know, of the two and a quarter million, I had to pay a half million bucks in taxes. We had to pay the bank off. We had to pay the business broker. Um, and so there really wasn't that much left of the purchase price. Um, so, so really for me selling the purchase price, wasn't the reward. The reward was freedom, not having the stress. And then provided this business succeeded, I would have made more money over the next 10 years working for the new owner than I would have paid myself owning the business. So while it sounds like a lot of money on paper, two and a quarter million isn't squat after the government gets their hands on it. And, um, you know, you got company loans and then restarting a business like this. Again, we talked about how incredibly equipment intensive it was. Um, you know, I dropped a half million bucks on equipment in the first couple months. And, you know, every job we did took twice as long as it should have because we were missing uh, some widget. And so just everything was, it, it's been an incredibly hard year restarting. So yes, we've got more equipment than we've ever had right now. I've got my original building back. I've got most of my original employees back because they all uh, scattered to the wind um, when things started going bad with the new owner. Um, I got most of my original customers back because I was able to restart faster than they could find um, alternative suppliers. Um, but, you know, my business took a huge hit right now. We're at, you know, you know, we're on a, you know, $1.2 million pace, you know, 60% of what our, what our sales were before, um, you know, which is great. We're ahead of schedule. Um, but, you know, this business took a huge hit and, and was it worth it? No, it wasn't worth it regardless. Will I be fine in a couple of years? Will this business be better than it ever was in a year or two? Absolutely. Ross, what was your reaction to getting fired? Like what was the rationale the buyer gave you for wanting to let you go? And, and how did you react to that? Um, well, the bottom line was he couldn't handle, um, he couldn't handle the, the fact that, um, he got any pushback on his ideas and, and et cetera. And he couldn't handle that a young woman knew his business better than him. So, um, at that point, um, you know, he fired me first thing in that morning and, you know, I'm like, Hey, whatever, you know, you're right. And he still got to pay me. I didn't save him any money. He still had to pay me under our contracts. Um, I was reasonably okay with it. Um, but I begged him not to fire my office manager. I begged him and I'm like, you know, she's dealing with all the customers. She knows the employees. Um, she could, she didn't have the technical expertise but she had the relationships to keep things afloat and you can hire technical, right? you know, you can hire technical. You got, if you get, you want to pay for it, but you can hire it. 
And I'm like, you know, you can get away without me probably, but you, I'm like, you can't fire her. And I begged him not to fire her. And his answer was, well, the new guy starts at noon today and I can't afford both. And that was a huge, huge mistake. You know, if you think about the entire deal, one of your, you know, things that you might do over differently was to ensure that there was a guarantee that they they couldn't move the equipment out of the building in mm-hmm. lieu of a, a personal guarantee. What other lessons are there in this story? Like if there if there's one thing that you might do differently if you had it to do all over again, what's the one thing? Um, you know, the biggest thing I learned through this deal was um, at the end of the day, the contracts you spend, you know, between the buyer and the seller, you, we probably spent 50000 on contracts to close this deal between the two of us. And at the end of the day, those contracts meant nothing. And um, so, you know, one big takeaway for me is, you know, for every action, there needs to be a reaction. Simple simple physics, right? Physics 101. Yeah. Equal, <laughs> that's, that's about there's it. an equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> yeah. For every action is a reaction. Well, when you're negotiating these contracts, you obviously need to protect yourself on the front end as much as possible, provide, you know, ways to make sure the contracts are adhered to. But one thing our contracts didn't have were any sort of recourse. So, you know, I felt like it was impossible that when I closed the deal, I'm like, oh, I'm the last guy that's not going to get paid. Well, it turned, as it turned out, I was the first guy that didn't get paid and there was nothing I could do about it. Absolutely nothing. He just stopped paying and he created, he fabricated a claim, um, which had no merit. And he was able to, um, drag out the court process for nine months, force me to spend 300,000 on legal fees. And at the end of the day, there was nothing I could do about it. So, for for anything that is in a contract that says this needs to be done, there needs to be a reaction. It's nothing else to um, make sure that things are because um, our whole problems, besides him just not being able to run the business, the, the first item of dispute was so very small, but he couldn't negotiate past it. He wouldn't negotiate past it. And so if there had been some sort of time constraints, if there had been um, uh, verbiage in the contract that said, hey, if the buyer has a dispute and thinks he has a claim, well, now maybe this, this money, instead of getting paid directly to me, gets paid into an escrow account. So that at some point, there's an opportunity for me to get that money. Um, because through the whole thing, I mean, he just, at the end of the day, he didn't have the money to pay his bills. And so he chose not to pay me and he felt like he could, you know, outlast me in court. And, and he made that uh, the wrong choice there. Um, but basically creating, making sure that there is recourse, both directions, uh, in the contracts, I think is a huge takeaway on this in my case. Well said, indeed. Ross, I, I, I'm indebted to you for sharing this obviously harrowing tale. Uh, where, where do people go to reach out to you? If, if they wanted to reach out to you, do you, do you, do you mind uh, people connecting with you on LinkedIn? Or what's the best way for people to, uh, to reach out if they wanted to uh, say hi? Um, 
yeah, I guess, you know, I guess LinkedIn would be the thing. Um, you know, you could reach out to me on there. Um, you know, my, my big, as I, as I told you when we first started talking about this deal is, um, you know, this should have been a, a great time in my life for me. And I know that selling a business is a great, um, next step for a lot of people. And, and my goal through this whole deal is to, and in doing this interview was to make sure that, you know, my bad experience can hopefully help some people, um, you know, transition through this, you know, one big, one big thing for me in this whole deal was, um, after I sold my business, I realized, um, what I had sold, I had, I had underestimated what my business was worth, um, uh, as far as the way it was organized and, you know, for a, for a, you know, a backyard shop, we'll call it, um, you know, that's what I looked at it as, you know, just a, a backyard mechanic shop in a 36,000 square foot building. But anyway, um, we had systems and processes in place that much larger companies, my competitors don't have. And I really undervalued what I had built. And I, I second guessed myself and I saw I had warning signs through the deal and, and I, you know, through deal fatigue or whatever, ignored them and, and it ended up uh, biting me. So my goal is that, uh, you know, try and help people if they've got questions, because it, it is, you know, very hard to research this, this type of environment or type of transaction. Well, it is that. And uh, again, we're, we're indebted to you for sharing your story. Ross Hoke, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.